everyone. I'm Ashley McManus, Director of Marketing at Affectiva. Welcome to Affectiva Asks, a human perception AI podcast, where each episode we will interview a thought leader doing cutting-edge work in the AI space. A little bit about us, Affectiva is the pioneer of human perception AI, software that can detect nuanced human emotions, complex cognitive states, behaviors, activities, and interactions. And Affectiva is applying this technology to advance the next generation of multimodal in-cabin sensing. Today's episode features nuance and discusses how to design efficient and effective human-vehicle interactions from a consumer perspective. What will the experience of future drivers or passengers look like in the cars of tomorrow? This is the question that Adam Emfield, Senior Manager of User Experience at Nuance Automotive, studies. He heads the Design, Research, Innovation, and In-Vehicle Experience, or DRIVE, lab, which explores user experience questions around multimodal and intelligent automotive cockpits of the future. Nuance has been known as the leader in voice for voice interactions with devices ranging from televisions to phones and to cars, and recently has been moving into artificial intelligence in making multimodal interaction a reality in various environments. In the context of where Adam works, so within the automotive department, he works to make multimodal interaction in the car a possibility. Their mission is to make the interaction between humans and the car much more natural than it's ever been in the past. So we recently caught up with Adam after a component of Nuance's CES 2019 demo featured Affectiva's Emotion AI technology to learn a little bit more about his work within the automotive space. With me today, I have Adam Enfield, who is the Senior Manager of User Experience at Nuance Automotive and heads the Design, Research, Innovation, and In-Vehicle Experience, or DRIVE, lab. His lab explores user experience questions around multimodal and intelligent automotive cockpits of the future. So thank you, Adam, so much for speaking with me today. And thank you for having me, Ashley. Awesome. So to start, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, Nuance and its mission. Yeah, all right. So, so yeah, Nuance uh, is a company that has been uh, known as the leader in, in voice for a long time for voice interactions with devices of all different types, ranging from televisions to uh, phones to cars. Um, but one of the things that it hasn't been known for as well until recently is its uh, movement into artificial intelligence and making multimodal interaction the reality in um, various different environments. In the context of where I work in the automotive department, uh, making multi multimodal interaction in the car a possibility. Um, so the, the mission we have, generally speaking, is to make the interaction between human and, and machines, as I said in our case, the car, uh, much more natural uh, than it's ever been in the past. Great. So also, let's take a step back. Um, what is your career path been, and how did you get where you are today at Nuance? Uh, so I come through a background in human factor psychology. So I come through kind of the cognitive side of psychology, uh, running experiments, uh, where throughout school I studied uh, the way that people acted with automation uh, and the way that attention worked, looking at uh, three-dimensional objects and things of that nature. Uh, and that led me down the pathway a lot of us in human factors do into the user experience world, uh, where I've worked at least my entire working uh, career in uh, user experience there. Uh, and so for here, you know, it started out uh, at uh, Nuance actually working on uh, kind of ad hoc research projects, user experience research around just whatever uh, someone needed the most. Uh, and that evolved into a point where 
I was I had more demand than I had time for, um, and so I ended up uh, needing a team and have since been able to build out a team with a much more specific mission, um, trying to have resources that allow us to support the research questions for um, the automotive space, uh, ranging from innovation topics in the future to customer projects that are work, being worked on right now. Um, and as that demand has grown, it's expanded to where my role now has shifted into managing that cross-functional team, the, the drive lab you mentioned earlier, which is composed of UX designers, UX researchers, mm -hmm. and UX engineers, uh, where we're able to not just to answer research questions experimentally, which of course is, is in my background, but actually designing experiences, testing those experiences, and to some degree building those experiences within the team. Awesome, so cool. So. Uh, we actually had you speak at our Motion AI Summit last year in a very well-attended uh, workshop session. So for those listening, could you give a little bit of a recap on what you presented? I know you, there was some car simulation experiments. Uh, there was a methodology to it, um, like what causes emotion in the car, how people want the car to respond, and some of the other findings that you did. Yeah, of course. Um, it was an absolutely wonderful event, and, and 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 it was a pleasure to be able to be there and, and talk about some of the work we're doing together for this. Um, the study that we had done that we presented there was uh, kind of a fascinating first attempt on the, the nuance side to investigate what would happen if we had emotion detection in the car, uh, what can we do with it, what should we do with it, and what do people feel about the different ways it could react. Uh, and so we looked at what would happen if we tried to evoke uh, ha um, some happiness or joy, if we evoke some anger, or if we evoke some surprise in people. And we tested some ideas for our ide if a car detects that you feel one of those three emotions, what can it do? And we found that uh, through some pilot testing, people wanted it to either play some music for them, to say something to help uh, kind of reinforce the mood or help them get out of the wrong mood or to try to complete an action such as reroute navigation if they're stuck in traffic. So we had people test this out uh, to see what they thought about it and, and, talk, and found that for the most part, people liked the idea of seeing how emotion could be used in the car. They weren't concerned around you know, privacy or invasiveness, which we uh, had a template they might be. Uh, and they thought that it was cool that a system could do something with that. Um, but they were really interested in seeing in the future what more we could do and trying to find ways that we could make sure that we could create a, a customized experience. It wasn't just kind of a one-size-fits-all, you're happy, here's what I'm doing, you're sad, here's what I'm doing, but rather go into something that would learn about any given user over time and learn, oh, mm -hmm. this particular user, when they're frustrated, here's how I make things better for them, and oh, when this person's happy, they want me to step back and leave them alone. Um, that's kind of the direction that they'd like to see it go. Awesome. Was there anything in that experiment um, in terms of results that surprised you? Uh, yeah, actually, that one, the, the, I'll give you two. The, the easy one um, that uh, surprised me was the fact that people really didn't have much concern about a car monitoring their emotion. Um, given how much privacy concerns are kind of the forefront of many of our minds now and how much I see that come up, I was actually surprised that people didn't feel like that was near as private as many of the biometric things that we collect in the car. Um, in a second um, kind of finding that, that was a bit more surprising, that was a little more buried, I'd say, is that uh, the uh, people's concern around the um, the way the system might behave when they're by themselves versus when they're someone else 
uh, was, I think, a bit more profound than I thought, uh, where people were uh, concerned about being so much more guarded with their emotions if there was a passenger in their car, whereas they may mm-hmm. not be if uh, they were by themselves. And while that you know, makes sense in some regard, um, it introduces kind of a surprising challenge of what, how should the system behave as far as consistency goes when someone's alone versus when they're not. Very cool. Um, so maybe in regards to this experiment and others, maybe, um, what are some major takeaways for kind of this data that you found? What would you want like OEMs and tier ones to be able to understand from this type of consumer research data? In the context of this, I'd say it's something that, um, that users aren't worried, as I mentioned, about having their emotions monitored, but they want to see what the OEMs want to do with it. And they want a kind of clear understanding ahead of time when they get in the car with some transparency, you know, what, what are you going to do with this information and what are you going to get me? And more importantly, on top of that, what they want to see is an experience that is uh, personalized. I mentioned mm-hmm. earlier, they don't want a one size fit all. So it's something that if an OEM is going to build a system that can utilize this type of information, they want to ensure that the user can get in there and, and have it, first of all, learn about them, but then customize it to make sure that it actually fits their kind of unique needs as an individual. Because emotions are they're kind of fuzzy. They're things that while universally we, we feel the same emotions, the way we want people and, and machines in turn to react to us is going to be different for, for every one of us. Absolutely. Um, so at Affectiva, we're working with uh, car OEMs and tier one suppliers on uh, human perception AI, which is about detecting all things human within the car. Uh, today, we're focused on driver monitoring specifically and improving road safety that way through distraction and drowsiness detection. But we're going to expand our AI to things like occupant experience monitoring with our emotion AI. Um, so from where you are sitting and based on your experiences, how might this be helpful to car passengers and drivers? You know, what would a successful implementation of this technology look like to you? Uh, there's a couple of things there that I think are going to be really um key and important to, to make this work in the in the ways that we'd like it to and our users would. Uh, first and foremost, you mentioned safety. The distracted mm-hmm. driving drowsiness is a huge part where for almost any new feature we want to put in the car, whether it's emotion related or, or new sensors that have nothing to do with that, if it can improve safety, that's one of the number one things people want to see. And so I think that's that's a key there. Um, going beyond that, though, I think what becomes helpful is when we start to look at any other pain points people have in car, uh, cars, the way that AI can help us get around those. And, and being from a voice company, I'll pick on voice for a minute. You know, the ability to go beyond just um, having a, a fixed dialogue with someone that we try to design, make sure works perfectly for everyone ahead of time. If we could simply detect that someone is, is frustrated and adapt the way we interact with them based off that frustration, then we're removing a roadblock to using voice technology. And if we continue to find other roadblocks, we detect that someone is stuck in traffic and and they hate traffic and we we use that to help them get around it or identify any other pain points. Once the safety layer problems are solved, I think the ability to add those abilities to get around other pain points is gonna be one of the most powerful things that Emotion AI can offer in the car. Absolutely, very cool. So. I want to ask you a few questions about some recent articles, blogs, white papers that you've written. Um, one of them was how to avoid common automotive HMI usability pitfalls. So uh, in the context of that paper, um, what advice would you have for OEMs and tier ones that are designing these HMI systems? 
Uh, fortunately, I think as an industry and in, in tech, we're doing a lot better about getting around some of the basic voice pitfalls uh, that um, because people are getting used to voice. But when it comes to some of the ones that are less obvious that we talked about there, um, some of the advice I would have is you know to, to put yourself in the, the shoes of an actual user in these systems before who might be new and think about kind of what, what the they are thinking about the first time they're using the systems and what risks they have, and make sure that you're not having knee-jerk reactions to the data that you see coming out in, in JD Power, for example. And to give an explicit example there, when in, in JD Power, for years, people have complained that they feel that some of the voice prompting cars are, are too long. Um, right. And if we react by just trying to shorten those too much, we end up with a rigid system that has these really unnatural standing voice commands and that people lock up with and, and suddenly feel like it's unintelligent. Whereas if instead we make the prompts actually natural and it responds by saying things like, all right, you know, uh, how about one of these options? And it starts sounding more human, more real. Mm -hmm. The prompt itself might be longer, but the fact that someone feels more at ease and more comfortable means that they're more likely to be able to get through those interactions more quickly. Right. Very cool. Um, another topic that was interesting was uh, this notion of car manuals with self-aware cars. And specifically, a stat that stood out to me was how Nuance Research indicated that 23% of people say they only look at their car manual once after buying their car. Um, I was wondering what you could tell us about this. You know, what type of information are people looking for and how, how maybe they want to provide it? Yeah, that's... Uh it's one of my, my favorite studies recently because it was one uh, chock full of um, surprising findings, I would say. Uh, the 23% the of the statistic wasn't surprising. We know that people mm -hmm. don't often read the manual, and we try right. to design products around that. Um, so that, that, I think, was kind of given. But beyond that, then when you start talking to people what they want to have in a manual, if you constrain it to a car manual, and you're saying, all right, you have a digital version of a car manual, you can search on either your touch screen or with your voice. You know, people start to ask for things that we would expect. What's my appropriate tire pressure? What's the octane of fuel I should use in my car? How do I install a car seat? But when you abstract it from a car manual and you don't frame it around that and you ask what things people want help for, they actually kind of go off the rails from what we have in a car manual and start asking questions around what's the most relevant to me at a given time while I'm driving the car. So they might ask, how many minutes till my next exit? Or they might ask, what's my current fuel economy? Or um, when the tire pressure light comes on, instead of just asking what that is, it might go, do I need to stop to get fuel or to fill up my tire right now? Or can I wait a couple of hours? So they really start asking these questions that really are, when you think about it, they make perfect sense that in the moment, you know, what does a driver want to know about a car? And they go beyond just what's in a manual and come down to more about the car being self-aware and aware of itself and what the driver's doing in it. Oh, that's so cool. Um, and another white paper that you wrote, uh, privacy versus functionality, we touched on privacy a little bit earlier, but uh, we always get questions and concerns about data privacy. Um, I was wondering if you could share some findings on this study you conducted and, and how car companies might go about striking that balance. Yeah, the balance is the key there, and that's something we, we suspected going into the study. So the, the premise of this study was that uh, people care about the privacy and they hold data close to them. Some of it's held closer and some of them they're more some of them are more willing to give. And 
that if you look at companies that have been able to acquire large amounts of data, you know, Facebook, Amazon, Google, companies like that, um, mm-hmm. the reason we think that people are okay with that uh, to some degree is that they're getting some value, some functionality or, or capabilities that they, that they place a high premium on or some value on. So in the context of the car, I thought was, well, what happens if you frame this in a way to people where you can give them all this new functionality where the car really can learn about them, learn from them, and do new things from them? Are they willing to share more data with the car? And what we learned here was if you simply upfront ask for people to share information about themselves with the car, now ranging from their name and going to the most private things such as social security numbers and text messages and things like that, that people are generally very protective of everything but the very basics. Now, first name is fine, uh, and maybe the city I work in is fine, city I live in is fine, but beyond that, they're more hesitant. Um, and then when you talk about things like credit card, even brand, you know, do I use a Visa or an American Express? People are protective of that type of stuff out of, out of the gate. But then when you tell them what you might be able to do with that, and if you actually pitch that to them first and say, hey, you know, I can make sure that your recommendations from your navigation system uh, prioritize things that accept your preferred type of payment, accept your type of credit card, and that minimize your walking distance uh, because you're someone who doesn't like to potentially walk so far. When you give them that use case first and tell them what the value is, they suddenly become much more likely to share the data with, uh, with the vehicle. And so what I recommend then to OEMs going forward for this is that if you are going to want to use this data, you need to be very transparent about what you're collecting ahead of time, but you need to frame it around what the value is you're giving to someone, how you're going to make their life easier or better or make them safer by getting this data from them, and then they're much more likely to actually share that data with you in the end. Super interesting. Awesome. So a last question about another uh, white paper you authored on uh, humanizing the automotive experience, and I think this is really relevant to especially the affectiva and nuance kind of collaboration. Um, I was wondering if you could talk more about the thoughts in that paper, specifically, you know, some objectives of a well-designed automotive assistance system components and features and their influence on the user experience. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I mentioned at the very beginning here that one of Nuance's goals was to to do just that humanized interaction with technology. Uh, mm-hmm. And in the automotive industry, what we've tried to do is move away from simply saying, okay, what are the technologies that we build and how can we find a good way to use them in the car? And instead, we're trying to take a step back, okay, what put a human in a car, what are their needs, what are their wants, uh, and how can we facilitate those? If it, through the lens of can, how can we facilitate those by using the most human-like ways of interaction. And if instead of looking at the technologies and trying to find which problems we can solve with them by looking around the user experience, what we've been able to do is identify that if we are designing things kind of, I guess, holistically for the system this way, um, that the technologies that, that we have and the ones that our partners have, that they actually kind of neatly fall into solving these problems. So in the context of, for example, the stuff with Effectiva, if we talk about making a humanized interaction that comes down to personalizing an experience to each individual user, kind of a me-centric instead of user-centric, we find this that, that by being able to tell someone's kind of emotional response to something, being able to tell someone's uh, history of what they've done in the past, by being able to recognize them by their voice biometrics, their, their kind of voice print that's unique to them, 
we can start plugging these pieces together to make a more holistic experience that ends up being much more natural. Great, that totally makes sense. Um, so we covered a lot of different topics today. Um, I'm wondering if there is one, if you could give one takeaway for the audience listening today, what would you like to tell them? Uh, so uh, you have to have one you know, takeaway from here. Uh, the, my job is to be an advocate for, for the end user here and, and for an OEM and for, for people like you and I who work for, for tier ones and, and other suppliers. What I'd have to say is it's, it's easy to lose sight of the fact that you know, at Nuance our, our customers may well be an OEM and for a tier one the same thing. But in the end, I think what the most important thing to do is to put yourself in the shoes of the person who's going to use the final product and design for that person. Uh, and to do that with, with real meaningful data and examples. And if we do that, to remind ourselves that you know the, the final end user, necessarily to the customer uh, that, that we work with comes first, then what we'll find is that everything gets better all the way up the chain and, and that everyone ends up happier in the end. Awesome. Yes, this has been super fascinating. Um, so for people who are listening, can you let us know where we can go to learn more? Yeah, so uh, there's uh, the, the key Nuance website, of course, nuance.com, where you can talk, learn more about the company and you can see things through the automotive division. Um, but I think one of the, the best entry ways to, to learn more about, uh, about Nuance, about the, our automotive division and what my team does, would be on uh, Twitter with our Nuance Automotive uh, Twitter handle, as well mm -hmm. as on our blog, which is uh, whatsnext.nuance.com. Uh, and those are some great entry points where you can learn more about what we're up to, uh, both uh, in the drive lab as well as at the uh, automotive division level at Nuance. Cool. And do you have any asks for people listening or how they can help? Yeah, going back to what I said, you know, needing to know what the users want. Uh, I, I only sit on, on one side of the equation here. Anyone who's listening, if you feel like there are questions that you need answers to, if there are challenges that you feel that drivers are having that aren't being addressed adequately, um, these are the perfect type of thing I would love to hear more about, something that if you could, could reach out with, uh, we could something we can start to investigate more um, because I have a limited scope on what challenges I think users are having. Uh, and I would love to hear other people's opinions on what challenges they're having as well. Very cool. All right, one last uh, question we're asking all of our guests, and it's kind of a fun one. Um, if your car could do one thing in the future to make your life a little easier, what would it be? So I think I'm going to avoid the obvious answer that I always get, which is uh, drive for itself. That's, uh, <laughs> I think, the easy way out. And I'm actually going to say that if I had a, a car in the future that could handle errand planning for me, um, that would be the best. It's a computational problem, but if I have to do six things in a day, uh, and if it can simply figure out how much time I'm going to need at each destination, how much time to get there, the traffic and the time of the day, and optimize that route for me, so I, it can just plan the order in which I do some of these things for me, uh, that would be something that would make my life, uh, and I think many people's lives, uh, a heck of a lot easier. Awesome. Well, this has been super fascinating, Adam. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. And thanks, Ashley. I appreciate the opportunity. What I loved about the conversation with Adam was his focus on the end user. So for an OEM and for those who work for Tier 1s and other suppliers, such as Nuance and Affectiva, it can be easy to lose sight of the fact that it's really important to put yourself in the shoes of the person using the final product and to design for that person with real meaningful data and examples. 
So if we design for the end user and remind ourselves that it is this final end user of the OEMs and tier ones that we work with comes first, then we'll find that everyone ends up happier in the end. I hope that you enjoy today's podcast. Remember to subscribe to Affectiva's Human Perception AI podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts for new episodes. We are also on social media, so please reach out to us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram at Affectiva to share any feedback you have on the show and weigh in on the discussion. Until next time, thanks for listening.